On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, Sue and I talk about the origins of common expressions, stuff we say all the time, but where in history did it come from? Plus, we're joined by veteran character actress Harriet Sansom Harris, who is one of the co-stars of Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple or Spotify, and we'd love it if you would leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob and Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob and Ronnie, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinske. Sue, Saturday morning, how you feeling? Feeling good, a little chilly, but, you know, that's the way it's been Always a little chilly. You always have that ski cap on. I think it's more of a style thing than it is a, and I'm cold thing. Seriously? Yeah, I think it's a style thing. I think you wear a ski cap because it's stylish. Well, it it actually serves a dual purpose because... um, I don't like, I, a lot of times don't like wearing baseball caps. So, and, uh, you know, I don't get my hair done for this. And right. the thing is, is that we don't post it <laughs> with video, but for our guests, I don't need to expose them to the horrors of what my hair looks got like. Got it. So. Got it. So we got a brand new thing. Uh, first of all, thank you very much. If you're listening, thank you very much for subscribing. We appreciate all that stuff. Uh, please subscribe, leave us a rating, leave a review, all of that. Uh, but we want to give you another way to reach out to us with, uh, show ideas or questions or guest ideas or anything you've got in reaction to the show, reaction to something you hear. We've got a brand new email address. It is culturepoppodcast at yahoo.com. Culture Pop Podcast at yahoo.com. You can reach both Sue and I at that email address. So that's exciting. I want to hear from the people, Sue. That's great. Well, I remember when we did our radio show in New York, no one can hear the show. So we used to do updates all the time. Oh, yeah, we did. We wrote and updates. Kind of give, right. We'd give highlights of what we talked about. Yep. Yep. So that'll be, that'll be great way to, to react to anything that we say. So, uh, we got a really good guest coming up. I'm, I'm excited, uh, about it. Uh, you saw licorice pizza, right? I did. God, I love that movie. It is Mm -hmm. so good. It is so good. And there's a really great kind of scene stealing performance in it from Harriet Sansom Harris. And she's going to join us, uh, coming up on the show. So I'm excited about that. So when I was a kid, I fell in love with movies because of a guy named Tuffy Reason. So Tuffy was the dad or is the dad of one of my best friends from uh, growing up and they lived right across the street from us. And so Tuffy took me to my, I, I, what I remember to be my very first movie as at least a, you know, a kid with a working brain. So he took me to see Jaws. He took me and Casey Reason uh, to see Jaws. And, it was your first uh, movie? 
Yeah, I mean, my first movie was probably Planet of the Apes, but the first movie I remember going to, you know, like sort of as a as a little mini grown up mm-hmm. was Jaws. And I mean, it totally friggin' blew me away. I was like, I, I was so nervous and so scared and I still don't go in the water and all that stuff. Um, then he took me to see, he took me and Casey to see Tommy, which was a pretty subversive movie for a 13-year-old to see The Who and Tommy. That was a pretty wild show. And then he took me to see, took us to see Alien, which is one of the, still one of the scariest movies I've ever seen with those things that jump out and get on John Hurt's face. And he turned, you know, all that. You will never, ever go into a spaceship again. No, never. I'm done. Because <laughs> you know what? In space, no one can hear you scream. I believe that is the official slogan of that movie. So all these years later, I get emails from Tuffy Reason, and they are really, really good. Casey listens to the show. Uh, Tuffy, his dad, listens to the show. Uh, Janice, his mom, listens to the show. So I got an email from him yesterday, and I love this stuff. So these are where famous expressions came from. So I'm going to give you an expression. See if you can guess where it might have come from. Okay, these are like idioms. So here's one. Close but no cigar. Everybody knows that you're close, but no cigar. Is it that you're not going to kind of win something? You that- are right on it. Yeah, because you because you get a cigar in like celebration for something. So. Yeah. So during carnivals in the 1800s, cigars were rewarded as prizes for winning carnival games. So close to winning, but no cigar. Hmm. Um, OK, at the drop of a hat, at the drop of a hat. The drop of a hat. It sounds like it's something that would be silent because when when a hat drops, I mean, you wouldn't hear it. But okay, you're onto it. Instead of a gunshot to indicate that a race is supposed to start in the 1800s, it was customary to just drop a hat to single the, to signal the start. So that's where that or that's the origin of that one. Okay, pulling out all the stocks. I love this one. Pulling out all the stops. Pulling out all the stops. You'll never get it in a million years. So I'll tell you. Oh, go I, it seems like something flowing or something. I think of a stopper, but I don't know. Okay. So this originated from back when organists would literally pull the stops from every pipe on an organ so that it would play at maximum volume. So like a church organ, if they didn't want to play it too loud, they would put stops in those uh, in those uh, uh, pipes. Mm-hmm. And when they were pulling out all the stops, it would play much, much louder. So that's where pulling out all the stops came from. Hmm. Okay, best foot forward, best foot forward. Best foot forward. Hmm. These are tough to guess. Yeah, I have no okay. idea. Okay, so when bowing to nobility, a gentleman would literally put his best foot forward, extending his leg to take the bow. So you you decide, okay, is my left foot, is my right foot? Oh, I, my right foot is my best foot. I will put it forward when I bow to the queen. Do you have uh, a best foot? I do. My, uh, my left foot is my best foot. My right foot is the one that I shattered in that accident. It's got nine screws and a plate in it. So I would <laughs> definitely not put that foot forward. Do you have a best foot? They're equal to me. <laughs> they, they are equal. Okay. 
you know, uh, at, at the drop of a hat. At the drop of a hat. Yeah. Okay. Get off your high horse. This one you might get. Well, I would think that it has something to do with. Um, well, obviously, it's something to do with um, feeling that you're better than somebody. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So before cars, owning a horse was a sign of prominence since nobility and high-ranking military officials were primarily the ones who owned them. So getting off meant to humble yourself, getting off your high horse. Uh, I don't like that one. I don't like that one. Okay, last one, last one. Dressed to the nines. Someone is dressed to the nines. Dressed to the nines. Is it? Is 10 the highest and you're dressed to the nines? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's, here's how it goes. So dressed to the nines meant that you're rich enough to literally purchase the entire nine yards it took to make a tailor fit outfit, including a vest and a jacket. So you needed nine yards to be able to make that back in the day. So I, I just, I love where these expressions mm -hmm. come from. I love where they come from. So uh, last night, tell me if this is desperate and sad. You know, I was, I'm rebooting my life, Sue. Uh, 2022, rebooting my life. Yes. And so you laugh because, you laugh because I've done this before, right? And then I fall yes. off the, the proverbial wagon. You're, you're a rebooting process. Yeah. So it's funny. My college roommate, Ben Rowe, would always say, I'm turning over a new leaf. And then the leaf would be back to where it was, you know, two weeks later. So last night, I wanted a donut. I wanted only one donut. Only one donut. I was not going to go crazy on the donuts. So eight. But what, were, what were donuts doing in your house to begin with? Okay, now that you're so, rebooting your life. So, so here you go. So ate a healthy dinner. I was like, I'm proud of myself. And I saw, I thought, you know, I'd like one thing that is sweet. One thing that is sweet. So I ordered donuts from DK Donuts and they were delivered. Now I ordered two donuts. Only you can two, order donuts. two donuts. Yeah, one nope. for me and one for Juan. What does it cost to order two donuts? $15. And is to there order two donuts. Oh my God. That is a desperate, sad state. So I ordered two donuts. Okay. I fell asleep. And I realized at about 1.30 in the morning, oh my God, there's a donut on the front porch. So <laughs> I get up, I run outside, I get the two donuts, I eat my donut, almost like I'm asleep, right? I'm sleep eating, but that donut was delicious. Now, does that sound desperate? Does that sound like somebody who's re successfully rebooting their life? No. <laughs> But you just happen to fall asleep. It's not like, oh, the donuts are there. I'm not going to eat it. I'm just going to go to bed. I mean, you completely forgot that they were there. Realized you actually woke up. What time did you wake up? One thirty in the morning. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's donuts on the porch. <laughs> oh, God. Thank God. Uh, someone didn't, you know, like, like your ring didn't, you know, your ring doorbell didn't go off. Right. Somebody stole the donuts. So now that seems. That's an addict. It's yeah, but addict. just one donut. It's an addict. I mean, you think I'm a donut addict? Absolutely. Is there a you support group? 30 in the morning and ate a donut <laughs> during your reboot phase. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I used to do that with cigarettes. You oh, know, did I, you? You died. Oh, you just one cigarette. 
just one cigarette, or I would take a pack of cigarettes, crush them, throw them in the garbage, and then try to salvage some of the broken cigarettes. You know, take a piece of it, oh, put, it back, yeah, that's, put it back into the filter. That's super sad. Yeah. Like that's a total chunky. Yeah. So you think that's what I'm doing? Yes. Even if it's only one. Well, it's one now. Yeah, it's one. And you, <laughs> all, right. well, you, you only got two. Yeah, I got one for me and one for one. Okay, so it's not like you got two of them for you. Correct. And, and only ate one. You got one a piece. So you didn't eat his. No, correct. I didn't eat his. I only ate I, the one. Well, would he be, have if been I was a If what? I was a donut junkie, I would have eaten his donut too. And how would he have felt about that? Would he have been, been upset? Very sad because he woke up at three thirty and ate his donut. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know they're out there. It's good. It's good to know they're out there. Oh man! Yeah. All right. Uh, so our guest today had her breakthrough performance on stage in the original production of Paul Rudnick's Jeffrey. Since then, she has been one of the go-to character actresses in Hollywood. She starred in shows like Desperate Housewives and Frasier, movies like Memento and The Phantom Thread. Her current project is Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, where she has a scene-stealing performance. Harriet Sansom Harris joins us. Harriet, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. It's lovely to have something to do. <laughs> very nice. Very <laughs> really, nice. these days. So yeah. I imagine you were one of those actors who people say, I, I know you from something. Where, where did I see you? Do, do you run into that a lot? No, they, they tend to think they went to school with me or that I, I know someone they know. Or they, I don't think people, it, people are always surprised to find out I'm an actor. Um, even my neighbors. So it's, <laughs> they don't so get out. It's, I don't, it's just, it doesn't occur to people. I drove onto the <laughs> Paramount and I worked there. I had a series at the time and I drove on to Paramount and one of the security guards just wouldn't let me on. He couldn't believe it. <laughs> and I thought, you're kidding, right? It's a, it's must-see TV. <laughs> but then I saw that he was reading Balzac, and I kind of figured, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's unaware of my career. Yeah. So you went to, so when I was a kid growing up, I wanted to be an actor so badly. And I applied to Yale. I actually got into Yale. You went to Juilliard, uh, which I, I was like, Juilliard, it sounds so, what was Juilliard like? It was all that. I've got to tell you. <laughs> so I missed I missed, missed it completely. It, yeah. Oh, you really did. It was great. You know, it uh I I think it was really rigorous and people schools would be really tough on you back then. You know, now uh, the thinking is you just don't damage people the way that you used to be able to damage them. So, um but it did it was preparation for what is a very hard career. And I remember one of the teachers the first day we were in his class i think it was the second year the um he said look to the left of you that person won't be there in five years look to the right that person won't be there in 10 mm. and you know the people that were at the end of the line kind of <laughs> didn't know what to think about anything <laughs> but it it's sort of true i was in a really talented class and so our attrition rate is maybe not as great as other classes but it's hard and people 
um, even people who are doing well decide they want out. You know, it's just not, it's actually temperamentally not for them. It's not for lack of talent or a lack of opportunity. They just sort of say, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. Hmm. And that just never occurred to me. I don't think I really just thought it's, it's what I do. It's what I, how I relate to the world and it's how I learn about things and, and, uh, people learn all sorts of different ways, but I, I tend to learn most when I'm working. So do you think that acting teachers did that to, um, because they knew how hard it was. And if you didn't have the toughness, because I went to the American Academy of Dramatic, Dramatic Arts in, in New yeah. York in the seventies. Yeah. yeah. And I, my teacher was Gretchen Weiler. Oh, well, and yeah. she was, uh, she was so mean. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she was, she was, she was a fantastic teacher, but she was really mean. And I remember her telling students, uh, repeatedly, I wouldn't pay a dime for that performance. <laughs> and it really just hurt so deeply. But yeah. I, I, I kind of, I, I don't know. My, my, my feeling is that they were really trying to separate, you know, the boys from the men, basically. You know, yeah, and I, uh, but I think sometimes, you know, it, it, I don't think it happened to a great degree, but I think sometimes you can separate somebody from their desire to do something that possibly they were born to do. And, and that is very sad. But, um, and, and I, and I do think a lot of people in our class, I think there were 32 to begin with, and I think 16 of us graduated, hmm. and some people left on their own. And some people just weren't asked back. I don't think they do that at Juilliard anymore. I think once you're in past the first year or something, then you're in for the four. But it, they, they really did sort of say, too, I think to some people, you're not this kind of actor. You're another kind of actor. Hmm. You will not be doing classical roles. You, will, you know, who's, who's doing those right now, really? Yeah. But um, the opportunity is, is even less than it was. But I think they thought certain people are wonderful, but they don't have a big enough voice for a theater or just all sorts of things. Or unless you're happy playing a certain kind of part, you're not going to be cast in the, you know, and you may think you're this, but you're not, you're that. And a lot of us just kind of went, well, <laughs> that's your idea. And I'm just going to see what I am, you know, or I think I know what I am better than you know, I am what I am. So it, it is, it instills a certain kind of toughness. If you didn't have it, I think a lot of people that get into conservatories or, you know, the American Academy or Yale or, you know, Juilliard or where, oh, so many good schools now, but they come from little towns all over America. They've been the best thing in their town, everybody loves them or thinks this is the only thing you can do. Believe me, make a success of this because you're not born for anything else. Hmm. Then, um, and they just sort of think, well, I'm in the school and now my trajectory is just going to be, uh, just, I'm, I'm on a rocket ship now because I got in this great school and it's, that's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. So one of your early, like big breaks was Jeffrey. Uh-huh. On, on stage in New Speaking York. Speaking of classical theater. Cla- yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I graduated high school in 83. I'm gay. Uh, I was terrified of, of AIDS and HIV in those days. And I remember seeing the movie. I never saw it on stage, but I remember seeing the movie and it was pretty radical uh, at its time. I mean, it was really a comedy about AIDS, right? 
Yeah, it was like a safe sex comedy. Yeah. It was really something that encouraged people to go on and live their life and, um, you know, make, make uh, prudent choices, I guess, you know. And, but it was, it, it was a great show because at the same time, of course, Tony Kushner's Angel in, Angels in America was playing. So we were a real counterpoint to that. And everybody, at least that I knew in New York, was seeing both shows. And they got very different things from both shows. And it was a wonderful time to have different points of views exposed like that and have people be able to find themselves. And another thing I thought was so great about Jeffrey was... Uh, a number of young people came up after the show and said, and maybe it was their third or fourth or fifth time of seeing it. Yeah. And they said, I, I brought my mom to see this and uh. we had dinner and I came out and, and she was okay hmm. because she, we'd had this experience together and she had sort of known, but didn't know. Or So it was it, again and again and again, I heard that and I thought it's really, it's, it's not just a hilarious show. It was performing a great service. And, uh, and it was wonderful to be part of. And that's what attracted me to being in the theater anyway. I yeah. thought, you had to, thought you had to do the, you know, the plays by Shakespeare, the classical theater, to have the impact where people could look at their lives. And, and, uh, and you don't. You yeah. know, that was a very meaningful experience, I think, for all of us in the cast. So when I was in, I loved, I always loved the theater. And I remember very clearly going to, uh, with my mom, to see Torch Song Trilogy at the, uh, at the theater that was up the street from us at the uh, Masonic Auditorium. And it was a traveling company. And I was so, I, you know, I wasn't out. I didn't come out till I was like 26 and I just remember being so embarrassed that we left at the intermission of Torch Song Trilogy because I had so much trouble watching it with my mom. Oh, mm. I, I, you know, but that's great because it hit you that hard. Oh, yeah. And I think you knew that it was having an impact on your mother, too. And uh, my grandfather took me to see, I think, far from the madding crowd because i think he just thought well this is going to be beautiful and i guess he didn't read a lot of thomas hardy or whatever and and although he was very well read but there was a scene and i think it must have been julie christie and alan bates or something mm. and it wasn't like terribly graphic but um this was before you know you could take any kid to see anything at that there was no ratings and my grandfather just dropped his head and i could see that he was just pretending it wasn't happening <laughs> and that he hadn't brought his granddaughter to to see something that was possibly going to be an awakening or stirrings or something that he felt embarrassed about or he, he himself was experiencing something yeah but it just his only reaction was just to this is going to stop and it'll go away <laughs> and and i think you know theaters and films have that impact on people they're going to see something they weren't prepared for yeah you know not so much now because you have to put trigger warnings into things yeah and um so the unexpected maybe doesn't hit you as unexpectedly but um the, but i can understand the need for for that for uh members of the audience so uh 
but it is, it's one of the things I love about theater is that you're not, you're confronted with something you're not necessarily ready for. And that's a great thing about theater. It, it gets you over that hump. Yeah. So yeah. that you have to look at it and say, I can't believe I was too embarrassed to stay. I've got to find a way of coping. Yep. I can't, I can't be in this, even if you can't sit through the play. I can't, but I can't be in this territory my whole life. Right. So well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. That is it. That's the end of any <laughs> thought I might have. I'm so happy to be talking to people. I just don't stop. <laughs> this will be the trigger warning. Southerner <laughs> given a microphone. Just terrifying. Well, I wanted to get back to the controversy of Jeffrey because I, I was... I was a, a, a kind of a new stand-up comic at, at the time when, when AIDS, you know, was there, came out. And um, I had a joke about how um, that, that AIDS was like musical chairs, you know? It was like whoever you were with when the music stopped, that yeah. was going to be your partner for the rest of your life because it was too scary to date an unknown person. Yeah. So whoever you were with. And I got a lot of mixed reactions from it, you know, and Jeffrey being, you know, a comedic, you know, show. And, and now today, you know, it's, it, it, comedians can't say a lot of things, you know, I mean, and there are comedians that, um, you like will, will not work college campuses because they're, they're just, you know, they're warned. You can't talk about this subject matter or that subject matter. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it's kind of a, kind of a sad state of affairs anyway you know I yeah think creatively you know but even then i think there were because certainly paul rednick does like to also test the limits and see you know um see is this funny or is it just appalling so yeah. or is it a combination of both and there was a a line i remember i had that uh Edward Hibbert, who was mourning the loss of his beautiful lover, Brian Batt, or um, Sterling mourning Darius, mm -hmm. actually. Um, and he had, uh, I was playing a faith healer named Deborah Morehouse, not a, a new age healer, not a faith healer. And I was commiserating with him and how, how dreadful it was. And, and then I said, was he attractive? And mm. it, the whole audience just went, oh, <laughs> and it was really like, um, oh, like this wall of hate and heat that just engulfed the stage. And everybody had laughed at it in rehearsal, but it was just too, it was too much for people. They just, yeah. and I, I, I was so sorry that we had to cut that joke, but I really thought I probably won't live through it if I keep doing it. <laughs> someone's someone's going to make me pay for having said it. But there are, there are so many ways to deal with that amount of grief and pain that was going on. And I think Paul's way and the way we all tried to Unite through the humor of it was a great way to deal with it. Yeah. 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 yeah for sure. So what I, so we watch licorice pizza and we absolutely love licorice pizza. It's such a fun, entertaining movie. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious 
I read a lot about, we're big fans of the show Succession, and Jeremy Strong, who is one of the actors on Succession, I'm not sure if you watched the show or not, he plays Kendall. Oh, I know he is, sure. Um, And there was a lot of conversation about how deeply he gets into roles and how he has to be that character the whole time. And uh, Brian Cox talked about how he kind of tortures himself. I'm curious, what do you think of that that approach to acting and what, and what are you like when, after the director says cut? <laughs> um, do you stay, like, depends, do you, do you have to stay in character? It on how he says it. If he <laughs> yeah. says, and cut, or if he says, cut! <laughs> I know, you know, it's, it depends. But I, I think, I think it's unfair that people judge actors for their process whatever it is, you know, people it's because it is a public process. People don't see painters processes and they don't see what the composer is doing, how they're living their lives. But the actor is always on in front of the crew and the director and the other actors. And, you know, whatever works is what you're going to, to use. It's not, uh, I don't think it's pretension. Nobody tries to make themselves, um, the you know, an object of conversation on the set, and uh, but I've worked with people who who really just like are reading a magazine and they say you know come back and they're ready to go, and or they're talking and you know smoking outside or whatever with, and I've worked with people who really immerse themselves and it to me it doesn't matter it's it it's what. If you're relating to the person um, and if you're giving each other what you need to make that scene come alive, I, I don't care how you get there as long as you're not hurting other people. You know? Sure. But, you know. What are you, like, what are you like? Are you, do you immerse yourself or are you the person that's reading the magazine? No, I, I really, I, I try to, if I have preparation time, I really try to prepare and I really do. If it's something very far from myself, I will tend to um, use my imagination first, mm. and then I will check it out with um, with whatever research I can find. I look at a lot of pictures, maybe of the person, or um, when I did Phantom Thread, for instance, with Paul, mm. that I knew that that was based on somebody. And I didn't know a whole lot about her, but I thought about what that life might be like. And then I tried to find, find what I could about her. And there was a lot. And then I discovered by <laughs> really researching that she wrote poetry a little hmm. bit. And I read a poem that I thought, oh, my God, that is so incredibly lonely. That is really, that's all. I really can stop here. That's what I need to know is that that's what she felt and it did have is very much what paul wrote but to know that that was actually in her behavior was helpful but um i've played eleanor roosevelt a number of times so i really have worked on that and have researched her because she's a real you know she was a real person sure but most of the time it's just what's on the page and how you respond to it and does does your response give an opportunity for other people to be in that world with you, or are you just in a, a you know crazy world that you've made up that has not, no bearing on anything? And the director and the actors and 
um, you, you can learn, you can see pretty quickly whether what you've had in mind is, is going to be something that works and is cooperative. So in Phantom Thread, you, um, you play Barbara Rose, and she was definitely, uh, from what I read, was based on the Woolworth heiress. Oh, Barbara Hutton, yeah. Barbara Hutton. And, um, and she had a bit of a drinking problem, and she was maybe a little unsteady on her feet. How, how, do you, how difficult is that to have that physical life that varies so much from who you are? I... Because I look upright right now, you mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, so, so as soon as we leave, you'll, you'll be hitting the bottle after we leave. Well, right? I'm strapped into the chair. <laughs> but I, I think it's, you know, it, it's, uh, it's not hard to play somebody that's inebriated. It's actually pretty liberating. It takes your mind off a lot of other things. And, uh, um, and one person's uh, inebriation or how it hits them is not another's, and so you can you can sort of say, okay, well, this is this is what happens to her. But it's that uh, you just have to figure out if the person's metabolism is much faster than yours or slower, and mm-hmm. if she's kind of a slower person or somebody that gets really amped up. So it's I would like to say it's oh so hard, but it's really not. And I watch people play uh drunk wonderfully all the time so mm-hmm. you know so it's- so paul you you mentioned phantom thread which is a movie that i absolutely love um and i'm a huge if i was to make a mount rushmore of my favorite modern directors paul thomas anderson would be there oh, and uh, he's paul- incredible uh, and I and I look at his movies and I think about Boogie Nights and Magnolia. There will be blood. The Master, Phantom Thread, Licorice. Yeah. What's the thread between those movies? Like, what is what is the 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 thread between those Paul Thomas Anderson movies? I just don't know. I think it's his just uh, his astonishing imagination and his wanting to to. I guess I don't know, um, but I would think it's it's the same kind of thing that uh, a lot of actors have of wanting to live in different skins and different lives and finding out do you have this voice do you have um can you understand this and then setting it in the right time for whatever you're it is you're thinking now and i don't know whether he starts out what you know how he comes up with his ideas but he's just one of the reasons i think he's so incredibly great is that there is no apparent thread and it's like Elvis Costello albums, hmm. you know, it's just, if, if you love this album, he's not going to make another album just like that. He's going to pursue, pursue what he wants to pursue. And I just, when I was listening to him initially, I just thought, my gosh, he's just, that's to me, a real artist. It's not the same, you know, not giving you what they'll buy over and over and over again. It's exploring new territory. and figuring out a very different story to tell and and seeing what you can learn from it. I I just think he's remarkable. A lot of people are extremely talented, but he's he's one of my favorite people. Yeah, yeah. So you play this unhinged casting agent in Licorice Pizza. I think she's it's- completely hinged. Oh, I really boy. do. I think she's I think she's very successful. And uh, does, you know, does she has met her moment, I think. Yes. But there's so many layers. 
to, I mean, to the short scene that you did, which is phenomenal. And, and Steve and I both believe is, um, stole the film. It was just such an incredible performance because it has so many layers to it from, from whence it starts. And then when you take that phone call, right? And it's like, you say no, and you say no differently each time. And it seems kind of serious. Like maybe you're not getting like the best news. And then you just break out hysterically laughing. And then you, the last thing you say is say hi to Tatum. And I want to know, were you talking to Ryan O'Neill? <laughs> on some takes, I was talking to Ryan O'Neill. On some takes, I was talking to um, one of her people, somebody that was trying to give me bad news that Tatum wasn't going to do what Tatum said she was going to do. But sometimes, yes, it was Ryan. So my favorite line in that, in that sequence is when you look at, uh, Alana Himes character and you say you're a killer you're a killer I just I I love I love that and you played an agent also on Frasier is yeah. there something about you and in, in this agent thing I, I think they're uh, I from what I understand Paul is not even aware that I played that agent on, mm. you know played bb so i i guess i come off and i think that's why i sort of said oh she's she's completely hinged is i do play a lot of um sort of mad bad dangerous to know kinds of people and i always feel like they're they're just complicated people that are you know a little out of sync with others but it's it, there's a rapaciousness that i think uh, an agent must have in order to be a funny agent they have to be scrambling as hard as their clients are scrambling. And, um, you know, Mary Grady in Licorice Pizza has that big office. There are a lot of desks. All, it's like Mad Men, practically. You know, all <laughs> those desks of secretaries that, are, that they walk past. And Mary is generating the income. Mary and her people are generating the income for that. So it's very serious business. But it is... Um, you know, I can dispense with this in a certain amount of time. You've got, you know, name that tune and this many notes. And I think I'm going to get rid of her quickly because I don't think she's necessary to in my life. And I, I see, oh, no, I can hang my hat on that. We can, we can go someplace. We'll just see. We'll see if this, this girl has legs and can run. So it's, you know, and just always keeping your options open. So I, I think there's there's that and that she's not um, consoling no, any more consoling than a teacher at Juilliard, you know. But it is a preparation for a kind of life that she is saying you will have to lead this life. Are you going to do nudity? Well, then you're not going to work much. Are you going to? Can you do this? You know, what are your skills? It's just a and it's almost like a little tug of war. And Alana and Cooper were just so much fun. We had just a blast doing it. So, um, it, but it is, you know, it's just somebody unafraid to push their advantage and their agenda. And I think, you know, it's fun to, it's fun to play. And since I've done it, I guess people probably do see that I can do that. So, working with someone like Paul, um, what's he like? Like when you're doing a scene, does he just kind of 
you know, let you just go? Does he, when, if you do pickups, does he, you know, yell things out and say, try this, try that? Um, cause I, I worked with Judd Apatow and, and that's how he, and that's how he works during a scene. He'll, he'll, he'll just, he'll just shout things out like, you know, and, and give you ideas of, of what to say. Well, that would be fun, I think, but that I, I don't, you know, and also I can't really say how Paul works. I've worked with him limited uh, amount of days on only two films, but he, he seems much more confidential to, than that, mm-hmm. at least as far as I could see. Sometimes he comes up and he'll whisper something that, you know, he doesn't want the other actor necessarily to know. Or, and sometimes it's just, you know, do that again. It's really bothering this person. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, that, that's really good. Or, uh, um, uh, or don't hit that so hard. Uh, uh, wait for this line. It's always very helpful. You know, he's a great director, but it's not. And sometimes he'll say, why don't you say this instead? But usually pretty much he has crafted those scenes so well that he knows what you, he wants you to say yeah. and you know, to say what he wants. And, um, sometimes he lets the camera roll for such a long time after the scene, you just find yourself saying stuff. And I think he generally has done, you know, when he's done that, it's just to see what you'll say. So you'll crack the crew up or something, yeah, yeah. you know, because maybe he feels like people need a, a laugh there, but not, not the laugh in the movie, you know, but so laugh on the set, right? It's very, yeah, it's very generous. And, um, and it makes you feel like you're part of a team. And I guess Judd Apatow, that, if you work that way too, and you feel very comfortable with that, where somebody's just saying, try this on, you know, and throwing something at you. And that I can, I think that could feel very collegial too. But it's in my experience, Paul is much more, uh, confidential. And yet he, he's always treating people like their colleagues and like their, uh, essential parts of, of, of his team. So Cooper Hoffman and Alana Heim are so good in this movie. Aren't they? they are so good in this movie. And, uh, you know, they neither has had a big role before. They're really sort of discoveries for, yeah. for Paul. Now, here you are a veteran uh, character actor and you're doing work with these these kids i'll say kids i mean they're they're not re- technically kids uh but these these new actors do you, do you play sort of a mentor role what did what did you oh gosh no i mean it was their movie and i was just there for the day so uh i think i, I you just feel like you've been invited over to play and you know it's not like it hasn't been designated what your position is but you've been invited to to participate that day. And I I was clueless as to who uh you know that that Alana had this big musical career. Yeah. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know that Cooper was Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. I didn't, you know, there was no reason for me to know that. I was just meeting two co-workers. Are you they just naturals, to- do you think? Um, I think they, they both in my, I mean, I'm so impressed with the whole movie and everybody in it, but 
in my experience of working with them, they listen incredibly well. They respond in a uh, unmanufactured way. Um, it's not, uh, the scene didn't call for a whole lot of raw emotion from any of us, but it was very, it felt very flexible. They were different each time we shot, but not, in, not so different that you felt like, well, your character's slipping there, or that's not who you were, you know, uh, on the last take, it was just alive. To, and we, we got to feel the, the temperature change a little bit and felt like we, I think I, I don't want to speak for them, but I felt like we felt we were actually in that room together doing yeah. what we were supposed to be doing. Yeah. So well, in that way, it's very natural, but whether they have training or not, I don't know. I well, mean, well, t- well, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson actually has directed a lot of um, Alana's uh, music videos. <laughs> yes, so they have a, a, a long history of yeah. you know, of camera time together, which I'm sure you know. I've since found that too. out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, it is a scene stealing performance. We love you in Licorice Pizza, directed okay. by Paul Thomas Anderson. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure meeting you. It's a pleasure meeting you. Thanks for having me. Both of you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, she was delightful. Oh, God. She's everything that I thought she would be. Yeah. What a, I, I mean, I always talk about how I wanted to be an actor. This show, this show kind of is about how I wanted to be an actor. I love talking to actors. I love talking about acting. Um, I still think someday when I retire from ESPN at some point in the future, I'm going to I'm going to say, you know what? I'm just going to start. Uh, I'm going to take an acting class and I'm going to start working at it. I still take acting class. I did take acting classes before the uh, the pandemic. But I, uh, yeah, I, I love talking to actors. I always wanted to go to Yale. I was accepted to Yale Drama School. I know. You've yeah. said it many times. I've said it many times. <laughs> if you listen to the show, you know, I've been nominated. So is this, I, I, this, this part of your reboot? To part go, of my uh, reboot, yes. To be an actor? Yes, to be an actor. That's exactly right. So, well, well you know, something that I, I didn't get to talk to her about because I forgot to talk to her about it was that she almost didn't do this film because it was um, because of the pandemic. Oh. And um, she had to be talked into because she, I guess she was kind of holed up somewhere in, I think it was somewhere in Massachusetts, okay. out in the woods somewhere. And um, she, you know, wasn't seeing anybody. And um, I guess there were delays with the film as well. And a lot of, you know, that was at a time when, when Hollywood had shut down and um, she had to be talked into doing the film. Wow. And I cannot imagine. I mean, I'm sure whoever he got would have been great. But, you know, in, in retrospect, I cannot imagine anybody else no, doing this. Role. Me either. Me either. So, you know, I've been doing some uh, some TV stuff. I went on uh, with Alex Michelson, our friend Alex Michelson, who's been on the show on Channel 11. Uh, here in Los Angeles. And yesterday I went on uh, Spectrum One with uh, my friend Kelvin Washington, who's a great guy. And I've been pumping up the the podcast. And for some reason, my family is extremely impressed that I am on doing these little appearances on, on shows. 
And well, you I, say you say you say oddly. Why? Because you're on the radio all the time. No, because I used to do TV all the time, and they were not impressed at all when I was hosting Good Day LA. Nothing when I was uh, doing weekend sports at Channel Eleven. Nothing. It's just like all of a sudden these little clips they're excited about. It's like I used to do this like all the time. Well, maybe it's because you're doing it again. So yeah, I'm sure like, that's what it is. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that's what it is. Yeah, but I, you got some love on uh, Channel Eleven. I heard. So you said you're going to get a digital copy of it. I so will. I I'll get you a digital copy of it. Yes. Yeah, so you can see it. Alex, big fan of yours. Big fan. Oh, of I'm yours. a huge fan of his. I actually watched him last night. Yeah. He's a great guy. Great guy. All right. Uh, hey, Sue. Great seeing you. Great seeing you too. And um, the Rams. So what, uh, how you feeling? Well, this will air in a couple of weeks and I'm assuming that we will be in the Super Bowl by then. It's the day before the NFC championship game as we record this. I'm assuming that Juan and I will be sitting at the Super Bowl at SoFi Stadium rooting for the Rams. Well, I hope that um, they fix some of the shortcomings from the last two games. Few too many fumbles. Few too many fumbles. And and allowing teams back in it after yes. having huge leads. Yes. So, you know, hopefully they will, the, the team that comes out, in the first half that has been very successful will remain that team in the second half. And they will not, we will not fall apart in the second half. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I'm feeling good about it. I'm feeling yeah, good. Do you about have a it. score prediction? Yeah, my score. And so you're, you're looking back a couple of weeks as you listen to this. So I will sound like a genius. It is Rams 34 Niners, 28, 34, 28. Hmm. That is your official score of the game. I'm going to go with, um, 30 Rams, 27, 49ers. Ooh, close one. Close one. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so worked up and nervous about the game as, as we're talking here. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be good. I'm excited for it. Hey, I want to remind everybody, you can email us, culturepoppodcast at yahoo.com. We will both uh, get your email if you've got a comment or uh, an idea for a guest or something you want us to talk about, you can email us culturepoppodcast at yahoo.com. Also, don't forget uh, to subscribe to the podcast. You can rate us and you can review us. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Culture Pop Podcast. We'll see you next time. Culture Pop.